Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. His views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Battier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I am here today with Susan Nash, Director of Innovation and Emerging Science and Technology at the AAPG. If you're not a geologist, you may not know what AAPG stands for and why they have a Director of Innovation. I'm excited to finally get Susan on the podcast to talk through what AAPG does when it when it comes to finding and promoting innovation in our energy space. So Susan, thank you for joining me on the show today. If you would please share with me in the audience your background and the easiest question for the interview, what is AAPG? Okay, great. <laughs> well, <laughs> this is a challenging first set of questions, but I, I'm really happy to do so. So, first of all, thank you, Joe. It's, I just I've really admired your work over the years, and, and especially in geothermal, and you have just a, a broad background. So it's, so, it's really nice to be able to talk about what APG is doing, and then knowing that you will totally, totally have ideas and, and, and contribute some concepts. But at any rate, okay, so my background, I started in geology, and then over the years I diversified into developmental economics, and then over the years did um, more background in promoting uh, technology and technology adoptions. And I did got started doing quite a bit of it when I was at the University of Oklahoma. I was director of Energy and Geosciences, um, or Engineering and Geosciences Continuing Education. So we had lots of opportunities to match make with, with all of our, our centers with, with different training contracts, also going out and taking experts, subject matter experts to different um, countries and projects, and also worked a lot with, um, with the innovation. And before that, I worked for Kermagee as an international operations analyst. So I was really involved in innovation there as well, where we had synthetic rutile and we did they, uh, we made titanium dioxide pigment, but more so different grades that that worked with like different plastics. I learned a lot about plastics and paints and all sorts of cool things. So I always kept my hand in the oil industry working with my family and family's business and and the oil and gas operations. And I'd always kept my membership as a, a geologist at American Association of Petroleum Geologists. And, and so like they all sort of come together and you're going, how? <laughs> but they, they come together because geologists work in teams and we work with engineers, we work with geophysicists. And then we also, in more ways than, than ever, work with data scientists and also in, in sort of new techniques and technologies. And the nice thing about 
geoscience. And what I always thought about is like, yes, economics is kind of a discourse of explanation. And I think geology is too, because there are many ways to approach the same problem. And so APG tries to encourage flexible thinking. And we're global, despite the name American, and we are more in subsurface energy, despite the word petroleum. But we are all about looking at the subsurface for different kinds of energy resources. So the part of innovation, uh, a few years ago, I had the opportunity to, to launch something that I had done a little bit before, and that was a new technology showcase and a kind of you pitch. And it's not really a pitch fest, it's, it's a matchmaking opportunity to get people who are like um, technology scouts, investors, people are, are looking for the latest things and they need the ideas and the connections. And so it was a way to get the new ideas out there and connect them with the people who can do something with it. Yeah. And so I think that anymore at APG, we, we are a facilitating organization. We facilitate the transfer of knowledge. We facilitate connections. We facilitate creativity. Yeah, that is, that's a great explanation. I completely agree. I, that was one of the first professional organizations I joined as an undergraduate was AAPG. I think part of it was, I think at that time, Chevron was paying the, the student registration. Yes, that's right. So it, it was easy because it was free and you had access to all of this wealth of knowledge. And I, I like your background in the way that you see, you were able to see different areas of innovation, essentially ways to either utilize new technologies or new new parts of the hydrocarbon chain for new products. And it's almost like that is, that is part of what the industry is, is that continual constant innovation, finding that, that relevancy. So I, I think that you've kind of already answered it and, and now I've just already answered it, but just to make sure I, I am saying it right, why exactly, so your role as director of innovation in emerging, emerging science and technology, why do you think AAPG needs some role like that? And what are some of those key things that you do in that role for AAPG now? One of the things I think is the most exciting thing about it, and I just love it, is that I'm constantly scouting. And I'm constantly working with all of our different events, our partner events. Like right now we're at NAEP. You can hear a little bit of clanging in the background <laughs> as, we get, as they're dismantling and getting ready for the next event. But NAEP, we're, we're one of the founding organizations of the North American Prospect Expo. And it's um, annual, it attracts uh, between eight and 10,000 people. And, and the, that's kind of on the, the selling of, of like land and, and uh, getting the rights to drill, et cetera. So that's one of our partner um, events. And I love it because it ties back to my early days of trying my hand at leasing and um, <laughs> thinking, oh, I need to leave it to a professional. <laughs> but, <laughs> but at any rate, um, yeah, I'm good at paying the highest bonuses possible. <laughs> and, and then the, um, and then we also partner with engineers. So we do um, offshore technology conference. We're a partner in that. 
IPTC, that's, an, um, that's an international, lots of international events. And we're partners with the, uh, geophysicists and we have a, a number of joint events. And so what, we, what I do is I work with the volunteers and I suggest topics, suggest people, suggest um, different kind of consortia or different groups that are, are emerging. And then um, it really kind of helps act as not just a catalyst, but actually kind of like create a scaffolding for a lot of the things that, that we do. And, and I just want to say also that it, it's good to work with the volunteers um, the volunteers need support as well because everybody is really, really busy <laughs> and yeah. doing more with less. And so it's important to ha be there to help like, make sure that there's that support for all these thousands of, of volunteers that come together. Yeah, that makes, that makes sense because one thing that, that I'm well aware of with AAPG and with other professional organizations, there is a lot of it especially when it comes to conferences and, and putting together conferences, a lot of that is done by volunteers. Oh, and yeah. even I, I have been to kind of early stage conferences that are, that are, you can tell in their infancy and they're not necessarily, they don't have the type of, of good coordination and, and experience to make the conference run smoothly. And then I've been to others that have been fantastic. Everything runs like a well-oiled machine. <laughs> and you feel like you are, when, when somebody says show or event to call a conference, like it really does feel like you're putting on this beautiful, amazing professional production. And you are going, you are learning a lot, and you are getting excited about whatever that, that conference is for. So a good conference can really make or break a, I guess a, a, a season for an industry. And oh, it's, yeah, that's true. So it has so, so much with volunteers. And then I guess with you and somebody there that I guess you could almost compare your, your role as the company man, making <laughs> right. sure everything is going forward. How do you, since we are at NAEP, one question with NAEP being really the, the tagline where deals happen and it's really focused on doing deals. How do you see NAEP as fitting into this larger energy transition and new technology and innovation narrative? Oh, it, that's a really good question because uh, NAEP is really changing as are economic opportunities. So for example, how do you lease land that's used for solar? What, how do you lease land that's used for um, wind, that that's part of the, the land professionals at role. But then there's some really interesting new areas. For example, there's a, going to be in the, on the showroom floor a pavilion for Bitcoin mining. And so what it's doing is it's basically creating opportunities. The idea is to find play, people who have stranded gas assets. And a lot of times the companies are not interested in producing it, but it's just sitting there or it's being, being it's kind of shut in. Or, and so 
here's an opportunity to instead of flaring or instead of just having it sort of leak into the atmosphere to to uh, do bitcoin mining use it to generate electricity to power the servers and then just do that highly intensive energy intensive uh, work right there okay yeah so it's the idea of where deals happen and that's something that people talk about is what do you do with all of this natural gas how do we reduce flaring now we are physically having the miners the bitcoin miners who want cheap reliable consistent energy and we've got all of the producers who are all on the showroom floor as well now they're in one room and you can actually make that deal exactly and that's not something that would have existed say 10 years ago exactly and another thing too to think about um so a couple of really interesting metrics there's been a lot of consolidation and so what happens in all this consolidation there the, one of the metrics is that the number of active operators has shrunk by 50 percent since 2019 so that means that not only did a lot of um, small operators just give up um, their assets were acquired by somebody else mm-hmm. And so it means that that there are a lot of mergers, consolidations, acquisitions. Every single time that happens, there's going to be a, a reevaluation of the assets. And there's going to be a reevaluation of other beneficial uses. So are there abandoned wells that can be converted into geothermal? Are there some um, opportunities for lithium brine mining? Are there opportunities for one specialty in, like, say they can deal with H2S that's produced in conjunction with Smackover? Then that, that specialty say, hey, your lithium brine mining idea doesn't have to kill you. Hmm. <laughs> we, we know how to deal with the H2S. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a, a good point that I've never thought about in terms of when you, when you hear the mergers and acquisitions, most of the time, I feel like you hear mostly the negative side of it and maybe shareholder prices going up, but you don't hear about the new ideas and almost new life that's getting brought into the various portfolios that are now being merged and trying to figure out what is valuable, what's not, and what needs needs a different perspective. That being something like the lithium extraction or the geothermal or or whatever else there is. Well, that's a really good point. And, and a company that's going into bankruptcy or teetering on the edge of bankruptcy has not been investing much in their um, in, into their operations. They've just been you know fighting off the wolf at the door. Hmm. And and then so basically, like this is a case I found out of today, um, diversified energy purchased Tapstone in the mid-continent, and they also purchased ConocoPhillips. They got their assets. Well, what they found is when they got bought Tapstone, Tapstone had an, a lot of old Chesapeake properties. And those Chesapeake properties had been neglected, and they, were, they could not afford to operate them anymore, so they wow. were just shut in. So they basically got hundreds of free shut-in assets. Wow. <laughs> I know. I mean, it's not free because you have to like do the work to to open them back up. Yeah. But. <laughs> but that's one that you don't necessarily find out until you get that 
that merger. And that reevaluation, exactly. Yeah. And then you're going, oh. And, and it's not necessarily when you come out and due diligence, especially when everybody's laid off. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So one more thought on that, since we're on this topic of reevaluation and really kind of finding those hidden gems in this merger and acquisition process, is there anything that you've come across as far as new technology in terms of some type of automation understanding of assets that you think is really cool that could have kind of highlighted that opportunity prior to a merger or acquisition or prior to the previous owner needing to just shut it in? Oh, yes, absolutely. For example, John Sinclair from Aventive talked about a year-long process of, of data cleansing as they after they uh, merged with Nexon and... Um, well, what Simrex, I think. Anyway, after they merged, they um, they went through a whole process, and in, in in data cleansing, they were able to actually do better reservoir characterization. But then another thing that one can do, and this is one thing that some of the presenters at our conference, our joint conference, Energy and Data, uh, had uh, showcased, and that is the ability to go through and look at the data, analyze it. And then if you have a plan, like create an entire drilling plan for the next like 18 to 24 months where you evaluate your prospects or your, your um, operating your, your um, fields, and then, then you can pinpoint and rank and prioritize wh where to do infill drilling. And then you can also start diagnosing by using analytics perhaps why something is not um, producing. So for example, instead of like going to the extent of a refrac, perhaps your lateral is no longer producing well, simply because of, of uh, fluid mechanics. That it's, it's, it's 10,000 feet long, it's porpoise, and there's a lot of tortuosity, and, and so it's like lost pressure, and, and the downhole pumps are in the wrong place. There might be some paraffin. You know, like do the things that are the easy fixes. And then you can do a lot of that with analytics. You can huh. come up with a plan. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one thing that I've, that I've, I think one of the common themes throughout this entire podcasting history for, for this show is that data, data is king. If you have the data you can then analyze it and you can come up with the the most cost effective or, or highest payback option but without the data you're just kind of shooting in the dark oh yeah definitely so I'm, I'm glad you mentioned energy and data i think that's where we may have met the first time i think so and i think Basically, that was the yeah. first conference right yes maybe two years ago mm -hmm. so in this role, you've gotten to, in your current role with APG, you've gotten to start and and build many new initiatives and, yes. and new projects. Yes. I'm curious, what is your favorite one that you've started? Well, I used to say UPitch, but I have to say energy and data have so much, there's so much enthusiasm and there's so much going on with, with even just different, it's not just machine learning and not just storage and not just, it's just, all the different ways that that um, you can find use cases for the data. So data science is one thing, 
programming isn't one thing, but applying use cases, bringing together teams of subject matter experts, of domain experts, is, I, I think, key. And then I think, other than that, I'd say, I do like the new technologies, and I also really enjoy kind of going back to the basics and and thinking about like interesting geological challenges. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's those are some of the interesting parts where all of those things can come together. Yes. Earlier today there was the the example of lithium mining from southwest Arkansas and a lot of that presumably produced water data that's coming from the oil and gas industry probably wasn't of interest when those wells were first drilled. But now you can start piecing together that puzzle. And ultimately that becomes a, a resource characterization question. And I think that was the same thing that, that we heard in the first talk from, from Molly Turco saying mm -hmm. that these hybrid plays and ultimately the way that because we're we're almost frack happy we want to go and we want to frack everything and just blow the rock to smithereens and then assume we're just going to be able to get flow out of it but actually once you break that rock you are freeing that oil to move where it wants to <laughs> so true. which may not be into your well <laughs> so it comes to the basics of understanding the geology and understanding the structure and the traps, the depositional environments. So it's really cool to think about the, almost this precipice and this culmination of having the right data and all of this data and the, the ability to process it, now coming back to those fundamental principles of geology. I, I love that, exactly. And then also just thinking again about like stratigraphic traps, whether they be um, discrete lenticular units from, from, from fluvial systems or their carbonates and they're from, from diagenesis. I mean, it's just yeah. like, that really, it's so fascinating. Yeah, yep, absolutely. So in this role, you get to see a lot of technology. I've got two more questions. They're almost opposite questions. <laughs> the first one, what is a technology that has really taken off since you've started doing this kind of scouring the earth for new tech, what's one of those that took off that you really didn't expect, just kind of came out of nowhere? Um, well, the first one that took off, <laughs> pun intended, <laughs> is drones. <laughs> and so, so that, that is, I first, like, we organized a, a drone conference and surface geo, geolo, uh, geology in, I think, 2017. And that was really fun it was here, here in Houston. And people brought their drones and things. And the idea was to just to see, like, what, how does a geologist use drone information? And it's, it's expanded dramatically with, mm -hmm. with the ability to have, um, have magnetometers and can, they, that can detect things like the um, pipelines or anything that's metal that's, up, that's near yeah. surface. And then also using it for different ways of detecting methane emissions. And, and then, you know, just other things with just like um, inspections and, and uh, monitoring. And, and it, it's, that's been amazing. I mean, it's just turned into something that everybody does. 
And Interesting. Yeah. And in fact, a couple of presenters today talked about, well, we have this fleet of drones. We do this or that for our, our um, emissions control or, uh, uh, well, surveillance, vigilance. Now, in terms of one that's taken off that I didn't expect, um, I think there are some that, that didn't take off that I thought would, that like, like a propent that would have um, surfactant on coating. And I thought, that would be really great. You could just have a propent and then have the surfactant and you can stimulate the well that way. Hmm. But it was too expensive to, to put ah. the surfactant on it. And okay. yeah, and let's see what else. Um, good ideas, but just just uh, a smart pipe. That was another one that I, I, it's a good idea, but it's expensive. Interesting. So when it comes to uh, technologies that didn't take off, like smart pipe or surfactant covered propens, and I guess any others that you've seen, it sounds like is that the primary thing is the the overall cost usually it comes down to cost or sometimes it's just a big fail in terms of it doesn't work <laughs> well for their sake we won't talk about those do you see any i mean i think i find that very interesting that it ultimately just comes down to cost because you i i guess i intuitively i know that that cost is a, a major driver but even with something like hydraulic fracturing, we used to spend, there was a long learning curve, lots of expense, lots of input cost before there was any payback. And I guess with these technologies, do you see that there is a, a lack of motivation in getting down the cost curve or it's simply just it's too early of a technology and there's no way to get down a cost curve. Well, the problem is we're talking about a commodity. And so when the commodity very, uh, fluctuates in price, then the economics like are horrible. And so for something to take off, you have to have at least um, the ability to do it when the prices are low and it's, there's a value add, and then maybe have two or three use cases, not just one. Hmm. So for example, pass, passive seismic, or DAS, distributed acoustic sensors. Anyway, it's like basically using the fiber that's already in the cities or the fiber that's been put it down for passive seismic, figuring out how to use it for other things. Okay. And so that, and especially if it's, if it's not just a one case, like, oh, I'm buying it, but if it's software as a service, yeah. then there are... Uh, a lot of people who would like to get into that business. Yeah. Yeah. And then it seems like there's a way to that cost point, software as a service, you've got a long-term monthly kind of schedule. Mm -hmm. It may cost the same over the year, but it's a lot easier to pay 12 installments versus one lump sum. That's exactly right. And, uh, and a lot of even, um, Oh, leak detection, et cetera, is, is going to that service huh. model rather than just buying a leak detection. And then here's another consideration. We see obsolescence, just like lightning speed. And so if you are doing a service, I mean, you, it actually is a little bit of a trap because it has to work all that time. And so that means you're going to be constantly having to invest in upgrades because the minute that there's one upgrade, 
in the, say the operating system, your 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 apps are going to deprecate. So, so there's, I don't know that people that are building their businesses and they go, oh, I'll have a monthly subscription. They really need to be pretty pretty pessimistic about what what might happen when, not if, the, the technology changes a bit. Huh. Yeah, that is something that I haven't thought about. And I was talking to some people the other day about about their specific website platform. And they were saying in the past five years, like what they started as version 1.0 to today, it feels like it's on version 50 almost. Oh, yeah. And it's still basically the same, same name, same general part of the industry, but how they have changed and, and what the customer wants, what the customer wants for a user interface, the questions they're asking, all of those different aspects have changed so much. Oh, and yeah. then competitors and how you actually implement a, a user interface and all of that. It's just, it's very, everything's moving so fast. <laughs> yeah, there's and there's a lot more to it than it might even, um, Seeing because they okay you can say oh I can I can I can go to Python libraries and modify them and and do this or that well that may be true but it's sort of like Chat GPT I mean I I had it write some poems and it was oh. like they were, they had end rhyme and and I could see the pattern I'd like say you know like write a poem about a shark and a tiger and then I had to do like a whale shark and a and a, a, a and a tiger shark. And, and it was like the most hideous dog girl. And so, and so, and then somebody was saying that, oh, they had to do some Python scripts. Well, okay, that's fine. But then once you plug that in, if you don't really understand what you're doing and you're just trying to keep up, yeah. what is your, that script actually doing? <laughs> What's it actually doing? And how, how computationally intensive is it? Right, Because right. that is one of the beauties of programming is when you have a really clean pretty looking code that a non-computer person or a non-coder could actually read and like kind of understand what's going on that is that is where the real value is oh definitely definitely yeah yeah, hmm. yeah I've done my share of coding a long time ago and I'm, I'm good at doing unintentional things and, and long <laughs> complex things that relate back to subroutines and <laughs> yeah yeah well i think it sounds like we might be getting kicked out soon and we've covered a lot of really interesting stuff so i want to transition into my final questions okay. these are the ones that i ask everybody the first question being what is a favorite book of yours that you would recommend um okay so oh that's hard to say um well, um, okay, so I, I've actually re revisited this. It's Small is Beautiful, be beautiful by uh, E.F. Schumacher. And it's, 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 it's applying Buddhism to technology. And the, the idea is, uh, uh, he coined the concept appropriate technology. So, like, you don't put in a mega project when one peace will break and it will bring it all to a grinding halt to like you, you, it needs to be like smaller projects that are are sustainable 
that are work with communities and community level with community involvement. Very cool. That sounds very appropriate right now. And I, <laughs> I am fully on board with the idea of small, modular, locally sourced. The more global we get as a, as a society and as an economy, we, I think, need to build smaller local hubs that can be self-sustaining. But I think it that's a, another podcast for another day. <laughs> Very good recommendation. I'm going to add it to my list. The next question, when will we be net zero as a society? (laughs) (laughs) I guess, um, I think the the answer is probably 2030, but the the metrics will change and how you measure net zero. So I think somebody will find a way to recalculate. Because like, okay, green, like a green company. Um, So so let's say that... um, I don't know. Nike announces we're 100% green. How did they get there? Hmm. They bought carbon credits. So I just think it's, um, it just depends on how you calculate that. What? <laughs> <what's> Interesting. <laughs> yeah, I I see what you're saying, and that's a nobody's ever answered that way and been that optimistic. But it sounds like it's not necessarily optimism. It's it's math. <laughs> it's math, and will it be what we think net zero is yeah. now? Um, I don't know. Probably not. <laughs> yeah. I, that's another one that I, I feel like there's a lot more we could discuss there, and and I almost want to, but because <laughs> essentially what I hear you saying is that we there is this there's this discussion right now kind of in society, in media, and all of that about the narrative and changing the narrative and what that means to change the narrative. And when it comes to net zero, I think what you're pointing out is that there has been a lot of discussion. There's been different terms that have been coined throughout the past 20, 30 years. Whenever, whenever we started talking about the climate and environmental footprint and all of this and every time we change the term, the narrative changes with it. And now it seems what I hear you saying is that you think the narrative is going to change in the near future so that somebody figures out how to be net zero and all of a sudden that is sets a precedent and that's what people target. I th- well, and it, it, it depends on what you include in the, in the math and the equ- equation. So for example, a carbon like a tree farm in California counts as a carbon sink, and you calculate how much each tree is is, is contributing to um, using up carbon dioxide and generating oxygen. But then, are we counting the Brazilian rainforest that's being converted into cattle grazing? Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> and so, I think it depends a lot on what you limit eliminate. So, if you've got all sorts of wealthy countries who are suddenly doing a lot of things that that sound like they are um, doing getting managing carbon um, then if that's all you see that's all you measure uh, I don't know uh, this is a cynical I, I know you get become no a cynical I, now. I think it's no it's a it's a very good point and and as somebody said again today that when we talk about decarbonization net zero, and 
and these big lofty ideas, it is a societal, it is, it needs to be a full societal conversation. It has to be, and it has to be something that's all about respect for all people Hmm. and all communities and, and all, and the oceans. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Well, now you get to ask me a question. That's my last final question. And, and we can stay on this, on this cynical, pessimistic path, or we can, <laughs> or we can talk about something light, whatever you want to ask me. Um, okay. So what's a, an interesting book that you've read recently? An interesting book that I've read recently. Or, or, or something that made you think. Yeah. So the, unfortunately I haven't had much time to read lately. But the, I think it's the only book that I finished that wasn't geology related last year. It's called Outdoor Kids in an Indoor World. It's by Steve Rinella. Oh, wow. So I'm, I'm a huge Steve Rinella and Meat Eater fan. And this book is essentially talking about the idea of how do you raise children who, well, it, it, it really, the book is about how do you raise resilient children who are ready for living in a in a world that's that isn't just going to hand them everything they want or need so it's about raising resilient children if i haven't said it five times now (laughs) and it uses the outdoors and pursuing outdoor and and spending time in the out of doors pursuing different outdoor activities as the kind of as that this is how he has done it and how his friends have raised their children looking at things like gardening fishing hunting hiking camping and other outdoor activities and how he sees that as building character giving them opportunities to fail giving them opportunities to get hurt, hopefully not seriously hurt, but like you're going to go scrape your knee if you're out hiking. And through that, you're raising, you're building character and you're increasing resiliency in the next generation so that they can go out and enter a world where you need to figure out how to be net zero or you're entering a world that has two years of a pandemic where which completely changes things like supply chain management and changes where you get your food changes that maybe you don't eat eggs anymore because they're eight dollars a dozen (laughs) so i think that is that is a book that i really liked and it really was the whole outdoor kids in an indoor world the name i think is really his view on how do you build resiliency and build character in your children. Well, what I like about it is that it's getting people to be like, like it's almost like geology is, is like actually having people interact with the tangible, measurable real world yep. that, that you can fall from and bruise yourself on. Yeah. And, and it, it's like getting away from what I was kind of talking about, which was a cynical postmodernist view of like, <laughs> like sort of like Michel Foucault's um, French philosopher's ideas of like, okay, well, it's all in meanings and who decides what means what? It's the power system. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I, it, 
to your point, it is very much the world that we live in and interacting with the natural world that that doesn't necessarily care who we are, what we do. It is there. It is going to continue to be there. And it is it has its set course and it's going to continue on its set course. And in in that respect, there's I guess it's a there's a different interaction between all of this that we've created in terms of like buildings, computers, technology, science, all of that 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 we use to try and make ourselves comfortable Mm -hmm. versus going outside and being like, this is everything else. And it it's going to keep doing what it's doing despite what we do. Exactly. Exactly. I love that. Yeah. Well, Susan, thank you for joining me on the show today. Before we sign off, is there anything else that you'd like to say? I just want to say thank you. It's such a pleasure. <laughs> Absolutely. It has been so much fun. I'm, I'm glad that we were finally able to do this. And I'm glad we're able to do it in person, in real life. Oh, me too. I most often record on, on the uh, Riverside platform that we record on. So it's fun to see somebody in real life and actually be having a real conversation. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. I agree. <laughs> yep. Well, Thank you again, Susan. And thank you everyone for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. If you're enjoying this show, share it with a friend and leave a review telling me what you're enjoying most or what you'd like to hear more of. If you want to hear more news and energy-related stories, we have all sorts of energy-related podcasts on OGGN. You can find them by connecting with us on LinkedIn or visiting OGGN.com. One more thing, I have a quick favor to ask. I have a one-question survey that I want you to fill out. The link is in the show notes. Please go fill that out. And if you do, we can send you some stickers. Finally, if you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you would like to share, send me an email or find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.